Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 31. So he, that is Jesus, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 30 kilograms of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. And then just jump down to verse 44. Jump down a few verses. And these uh, three verses, is what, uh, four verses, is which James is going to be opening up later on this morning. So Jesus continues and says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. What connects these three names? Remus, Terry Herbert, and Pavel Petko and Mikhail Kaikov. It's a bit of a hard question to ask, really. Uh, I'll give you a clue. I'm not playing. What three words? What connects Remus, Terry, and the Kaikov brothers is they all found treasure. Uh, here's a picture of an early Remus, that's the name that is given to this unmanned sub that's designed to do deep sea exploration and discovery. And uh, back in 2015, a team used a slightly older, sorry, a slightly newer version of that to discover the San Jose shipwreck near the Caribbean. That's um, Samuel Scott's painting there of the San Jose ship, who was traveling. Uh, in 1705 from Panama to Colombia with a cargo full of gold and silver and emeralds. And when she was discovered more than 300 years later, her cargo was worth $17 billion. Uh, Terry Herbert's perhaps a little bit closer to home. Terry was using his metal detector in a field in Staffordshire. Anybody have a metal detector? No? Okay. Well, maybe this little story will encourage you to think about it. Uh, there was Terry out one night with his metal detector in his little field. Hearing all the beeps, Terry discovered what proved to be the largest trove of Anglo-Saxon treasure ever found in one find. There's about three million pounds worth of treasure there, that not only was a great discovery, but it's actually shaped, I understand, how historians understand that period of English history. 
And then there's the Kaikov brothers. Pavel, Petko, and Mikhail weren't looking for treasure. Uh, They were just doing their job. It's 1949. They're working in Bulgaria. They work in a tile factory. And they were digging for clay. Digging when they discovered something that they thought in the first instance was a strange-looking whistle. Until they unearthed all of the other pieces and they found nine beautiful vessels that archaeologists subsequently identified as probably being part of of a ceremonial set that belonged to the Thracian king Suthes III back in the 3rd century BC. Now, I know nothing about that king or his kingdom, but those vessels were officially valued to be priceless. And the Kaikov brothers weren't even looking for treasure. How unfair is that? They're the kind of stories that really grip your heart, aren't they? Because that adventure of going out and discovering something that's been hidden is the kind of thing that thrills our hearts when we're little and continues to do so when we get older. Not least because you think, what amazing things would happen if my life was transformed by discovering a $3 million or a $17 billion discovery? Well, Jesus has us thinking about treasure this morning. And I want you to see how peerless this treasure is. There's nothing else that compares to it. Over the course of the last few weeks, Jesus has been describing the kingdom of heaven to us and in different ways. So we saw how people respond differently to the news of the kingdom of heaven. That's the parable of the sower at the very beginning of the chapter. We've seen that the kingdom of heaven doesn't change everything straight away, but that it will do at the end of time. That's a parable of the weeds and of the nets. We've been encouraged to be hopefully optimistic about the growth of the kingdom. That's the parable of the mustard seed and the yeast. And when you think about it, if you reflect on all of those different lessons, what Jesus has basically taught us is the method of the kingdom, the time scale of the kingdom, and the perspective of the kingdom. This morning, Jesus wants you to know the value of the kingdom. Do you know how precious it is to be in the kingdom of heaven? And by that, I don't mean knowing that when you die, you'll be in the kingdom of heaven. That's not how the kingdom of heaven is described. I mean, do you right here today know how precious it is to be a man or a woman who is right now part of God's kingdom that will one day be fully unveiled. It is a treasure beyond all treasures. I know this might sound a little bit hard to get your head around, but if you are in the kingdom of heaven, what you have makes the $17 billion find in the San Jose look like loose change. That's what I want you to see through these three verses today. And the first thing I want us to see is that finding the kingdom of heaven is a gift, whether you've been searching for it or are surprised by it. 
Not every treasure hunt ends in treasure. I know down in Lou this week, they're doing another smuggler's trail. Um, and they send any families who are interested around the town to follow people, make discoveries, and have some great discovery at the very end. Um, it's great fun, but you know, and Terry, the man with the metal detector in Staffordshire, knows that the vast majority of treasure hunts don't end in treasure. He'll have spent decades of his life wandering around different fields in Staffordshire, coming home with nothing more than a couple of tin cans to show to his family. Finding treasure is a rare gift, and that's true in both of Jesus' parables. A bit like the Kaikov brothers, the man in the first parable wasn't even looking for treasure. He was perhaps there just doing his job as a a laborer in the field when he made his discovery, which even with all the examples that we've thought about this morning, you've probably read that and thought, "That's, that's just not very likely, is it? Really, as far as stories go, that you're out in a field one day and you happen to stumble across hidden treasure? Well, that's only because we live in the 21st century. All of us have bank accounts. And if you've got some possessions that are particularly valuable, you may also have a safe or a safe deposit box. First century Jews didn't have banks or safe deposit box like we do. So if you wanted to keep some of your valuables safe, whether that's from some nosy neighbor that you're not entirely sure you trust, or whether it's from some invading army that's coming towards you, you would do what's described in this parable. You would dig a hole somewhere and you would hide your treasure in it. And the blessed man in verse 44 stumbles across this incredible treasure even though he's not been looking for it. Others, though, spend their whole lives looking for treasure. So you think of Terry with his metal detector. You think of the owners of the Remus. They're like the man in verses 45 and 46. He's described as a merchant, which means he's in the business of looking for fine pearls. He knows what he's looking for. He's always looking for the very best ones because he knows how to compare what's really good from what's not. What he wasn't expecting, verse 46, was to find a pearl of great value. So in both parables, whether the person is looking for the treasure or where they just basically stumble across it, both men find a treasure that is much more precious and valuable than anything they could have imagined. And if you're not yet a Christian here this morning, those two parables together are really good news. Because what they remind us is there are different ways of discovering the Lord Jesus Christ And the good news about following him. Some people are a bit like the professional treasure hunters. They've been searching for answers to questions about faith and life and the universe for longer than they can remember. They've compared and contrasted different religions. And by the time people like that become Christians for themselves... It seems like they know more about the the facts and the history and the, the truth of the Bible than many Christians. But that's not everybody. There are many other people who are a lot more like the man in the first parable. 
who haven't spent hours and hours of their life wrestling with inner questions of an existential crisis. They haven't been looking out at the world with a really heavy heart and thinking, what can I do to be saved? They've just been doing life. And yet you're here. And maybe you have no rational explanation for why you're here. Maybe you're here because of something that has been said to you by a friend, or you've had an unexpected knock at the door over the past few weeks, and you're discovering something about Jesus that is better than anything you ever thought possible. The wonderful thing about the good news of Jesus is that it can be discovered by anybody, whether you have spent your life looking for it or are stumbling into it today. The kingdom of heaven is a staggering gift to everyone who finds it, however you find it. And that's really good news if you're a Christian. Because if you're a Christian... It encourages us to never, ever, ever give up praying for people to be saved. We don't know whether the specific people that you're praying for during the course of this week are going to be like the person in the second parable who's spending all of their time looking, comparing, showing interest. As far as we were concerned, we'd be looking on if that person were searching for religion, thinking, oh, this person's really near the kingdom. It would be wonderful if this person became a Christian. And then you think over to the other person. It's like the question's not even on their radar. But God's at work. God is bringing them. In his sovereign plan over all things, he is bringing them into the field where they will discover a treasure more precious than anything they have ever seen before. God delights to bring what to us may appear to be the least likely people to find faith in him. That's what grace is all about. Grace is all about God delighting to save the undeserving. The, the wonderful news about Christianity is not that it's for people who are nearly there and kind of moral enough. It's not for the people who have basically tidied themselves up enough so that they're acceptable to God. The good news about Christianity is that it is God's, as, as Tim explained to us from Ephesians, it's the lavish grace of God that he pours on undeserving people because Jesus Christ has paid the cost. That's what grace is. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. So we must never give up praying for the conversions of people. Even the people that we might think are the least likely people to be saved. Because we don't know whether God is going to bring them into a field to meet a discovery they could never have expected. Second thing we need to see is that valuing the kingdom determines how you'll respond. Valuing the kingdom determines how you'll respond. That's the truth that's at the heart of both of these parables because in both of them, these men truly value what they find. So both men are digging, searching for something. Mud's flying everywhere and, and they unearth, whether it's the treasure or the pearl, 
there's a moment there where you've got to decide what you're going to do with the thing that's in your hands. You could say, well, it's a bit dirty. I'm not sure I can be bothered. And just chuck it out with the mud. You could look at it a bit like the Kaikov brothers and think, mm, that's an odd-looking implement. I'm not sure that's going to be of any value. Or you might unearth what's there and just be a bit, meh. It's all right. I mean, there's other stuff as well. It's not, it's not that big a deal. Maybe you think of it a bit like the uh, Amazon Prime deal of the day. You know, if, well, if it was... If the saving was another 10%, then maybe I'd be interested. But as it is, both men here know how unbelievably precious the treasure they have found is. That's what drives everything of what they do next. You can't jump over the fact that they find the treasure and then they sell everything, which means if you've got to become a Christian, you just have to get rid of all of the stuff that you like in life. If that's the connection that you're making in your head, then Christianity is just dry duty. It's just a bare command of a boring religion. There's, that's not what's going on here. This is life-changing joy. Look back at verse 44. When a man found this treasure, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had. These men weren't forced into anything. They wanted this treasure. They longed to have what it was that they had just discovered. And if you're not a Christian yet, I wonder whether you've been brought to that point of valuing and longing what we talk about when we talk about the gospel. It's a really good thing that you come to church regularly, that you're in youth groups or home groups or any other kinds of groups so that you can grow in your understanding of the Bible. That's a good thing. We want you to be able to see what the Bible teaches us about the whole of life. We call it a Christian worldview. We want you to be able to see and do all of that. But we want it to flow out of your heart being gripped by the treasure that is right at the center of it. Have you been struck by the fear of knowing that you stand before an unapproachably holy God? And has that fear driven you in desperation to look by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ? Who died on the cross so that you can be forgiven? Has that fear driven you to pursue forgiveness? And when you have found forgiveness... Have you discovered that you're folded into the family of God? That every single one of us, though we are born as enemies of God, as we try, as we trust in Jesus for our forgiveness, we become his sons and daughters. That's what we're talking about with the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. That's what it means here and now for people like us to discover this treasure. And as we think about the kingdom of heaven coming, we've been seeing over the last few weeks that it's, it's come in a significant way with Jesus' first coming, but it's not going to be fully here until Jesus' second coming. And the wonderful thing about that for Christians is that having seen the fear of our sin before our holy God that's driven us to find forgiveness in Jesus Christ, that means we're part of the family of God, we know that when he comes again, 
we will have eternal life forever in a new kingdom, physical earth, with a wonderful experience of the heaven of God being all around us for all time with no sin, no suffering, no, I messed it up, I'm really sorry, I can't believe I've got to rely on grace ever again because we will be gloriously perfected forever. That is the treasure that Jesus has come to reveal to you. And I pray that some of that would have gripped your hearts. And if you've not really been gripped by that before, if you've thought that Christianity is just about all this truth stuff that you need to know and all this sacrifice stuff you have to give up, but your heart hasn't been gripped by what Jesus does to every single person who trusts in him. Pray that Jesus would do that now. Not like even today, as opposed to this week. Now. Ask his spirit to help you see what this treasure is. And then you'll be ready to do what comes next. Now we'll get to what we do next in just a minute. But I've really been wrestling myself with how this passage challenges Christians. Here's a question that's gone round and round my head over the last few days. If someone were to look at my life or your life, Christian brother or sister, If someone were to look at our lives, how precious would they think we think the kingdom of heaven is? That's what's hit me between the eyes this week. If somebody looked at the way I prioritize my life, the way I use my time, the things I talk about with other people, things I'm impressing upon my kids? What is it that would make anybody think, I value this kingdom that much? I think if we're honest, too many of us are living like the church in Ephesus when John was given his great revelation by God. He's describing the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2. And God says to the church, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. All of that is really, really good. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. What has weighed upon my heart is that I think I have let the kingdom of heaven depreciate in value in my soul. It hasn't. It is still priceless. But in the way I think of it, in the way my life is 
completely shaped by it. I have lost sight of how much this kingdom is worth. I wonder whether for many of us we've settled into thinking that Christianity is a bit like an insurance policy. It doesn't thrill us. Uh, we need it because just like you need your buildings insurance, your home insurance, your car insurance, you never know when something's going to happen that's going to require so much of a bill to be outpaid that you need somebody else to cover that cost. But nobody gets excited about insurance policies. I'm really sorry. If there's an insurance worker here, that was, <laughs> that was not meant to be a dig. I just mean personally, you know what it's like. In our own busyness in family life, nobody gets excited about insurance policies. You don't, it's not the thing that drives your ambition in life. You don't talk about it with your mates. You're not even interested whether your friends have got an insurance policy. It's just the thing that you have to do. It's a bolt-on so that the thing's covered and then you are freed up to do the things you really want to do with your life. I wonder whether you're feeling somewhat convicted as I've been this week by thinking more about the kingdom of heaven like an insurance policy than a treasure. Friends, if you're there, if you resonate with some of what I've struggled with this week, we need to put the grace of the gospel into effect again. We need to come back to Jesus and confess that we have lost sight of the treasure that he's given to us. The infinite cost of it that required his sacrifice. And we come not with a sense of unfixable guilt. That's not how grace works. As soon as you're aware of some sin in your life, you come back to God in repentance. You confess that sin and you do so knowing that God's grace promises to cover over that sin and to throw it away forever. So we can find fresh joy in knowing that that devaluation of God's kingdom in our mind is forgiven and forgotten by God and we can come to him afresh with joy and thankfulness to know that what we have is enormous and God delights to give fresh joy and fresh appreciation and fresh wonder to Christians like us who have lost sight of the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. That is the only way that Christians should respond to the treasure we've been given. It's the only way that brings glory to God. And he uses the way that Christians rejoice in that treasure as a means to tell a watching world how precious this gospel is. Thirdly and finally, having the kingdom for yourself is worth everything. Uh, First parable, end of verse 44, sounds a bit weird to us. So this guy's found this treasure, and his response is to hide the treasure, and then, in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought the field. Um, In the Greek, by the way, all of that is actually present tense. I don't know why the NIV translated it past tense. Um, He went, sold, had, bought. In the Greek, it's all present tense. 
In his joy, he goes, sells all he has, and buys. I think we lost something in the translation because the idea is it happens straight away. He can't wait to get his hands on this treasure. But why is it all happening like this? Why doesn't he just take the treasure and leave? Well, let me explain the context to you, but don't lose sight of the big picture, okay? Uh, I have to restrain my inner property nerd here because what's going on here is Jewish property law. Woohoo! Says nobody else in the room. Um, we, we have a basic policy in our country called finders keepers. There's proper legal names for it, but you know what I mean. If you find something lost in the street, then you can keep it, right? The Jews had a similar principle, except they called it hagbaha. And, and basically it was, if you could lift something that you'd found, wasn't fixed, and there wasn't an apparent owner, then it was yours. Okay, jobs are good, and so why doesn't the guy just take it? Well, here's the problem. Because if he is doing this discovery whilst working for somebody else, then it could well be argued in a Jewish court that actually the man found the treasure as the agent for his employer, which means the treasure legally belongs to his employer and not to him. See the problem? So what this guy does is he makes sure there's no basis for argument. He goes and sells what he's, he owns so that he can buy the whole field and then there can't even be a debate. That's what's going on in the background. But the key point isn't the legal solution. <laughs> Neither is it any moral questions that you might have in your head. Like, did he tell the person that he was buying the field from that he's just found some treasure in it? We don't know. It doesn't matter. Because that's not the point. The point is, this man has found something that is so valuable, he sells everything in order to have it. Same is true of the merchant. This uh, experienced pearl dealer knew a fine pearl when he saw one. That's what he's out searching for, fine pearls. But this wasn't a fine pearl. This is a great pearl. This is, your translation may say, a priceless pearl. This is the kind of pearl that comes up once in a lifetime, if it ever comes up at all. And there's only one thing that any right-minded pearl dealer will do when they find that pearl. They sell every other pearl to raise enough money to have it. Because if you've got that, you've got the ball game. That's it. That's the point that Jesus is driving home. Having the kingdom for yourself is worth anything and everything that needs to be given up in order to obtain that because that's worth everything. And the point that Jesus is especially focusing on is comparative worth. Okay? Now you can go to other parts in the Gospels that explain to you that there is a cost to being a Christian. And that is absolutely true, and the Bible is completely clear about that. So becoming a Christian may mean that you lose some friends. It may mean that you get cut off from your family. It could mean that you don't have the same career plan that your non-Christian friends have. Jesus is really clear that to be a Christian 
will possibly to probably mean that you suffer persecution or discrimination. All of that is true, but that's not Jesus' main point here. His point here is what you gain by having him is better. That's the big point of the treasure and the pearl. It's that to have those things is infinitely better. You're not yet a Christian. Nothing that you may need to give up to become a Christian is greater than what you gain. Now I say that not to underestimate how big an ask it is to become a Christian. It is huge. I know that. More importantly, Jesus knows that. It may mean ending a relationship with someone. It absolutely means killing sinful habits. It means passing over the keys of your life to Jesus. But here's the swap that this parable makes really clear to us. That's the key to my house. Spiritually speaking, before you become a Christian, the keys to your house are to a house that is structurally unsound and will one day crumble to nothing. When you become a Christian, you give Jesus your keys. But Jesus doesn't leave you empty-handed. He gives you the keys to his palace. To his palace and kingdom that will never end. So yes, Christians give things up when they become Christians. But at no point does any Christian look back and think, I think I was better in my tumble-down house. And perhaps for some of us, you're going through a season in your life, in your Christian walk at the moment, where you need the Spirit to help you be reminded of what it is to live in the palace of the King. Because the devil knows that our hearts can be so quickly drawn to the here and the now. We can play comparison games all the time, can't we? Oh, if only I hadn't gone into ministry, I'd be earning this much in this house, on these holidays. If only I hadn't told the people at work that I was a Christian, I'd have had that promotion and parked my car in that parking space. If only I hadn't told people at school that I love Jesus, I could hang out with those people and go to those parties. The devil knows how to dangle what he thinks will be a carrot. What we need to do as Christians is ask that the Spirit of God would open our eyes to see the palace that Jesus has enabled us to belong to. Christians give up everything. Why? Because we follow a Savior who gave up everything for us.
How great is your treasure? The eternal Son of God, to use Joe's football illustration from the bite-sized truth, took upon himself, dare we say, a Coventry City shirt? (laughs) Clothed himself with our humanity and then gave up his life so that we can be forgiven. And what we need to pray for is that every single day, Jesus would open our eyes just a little more to see the value of the treasure that we have so that we would give God great glory and that the people that we live with, work with, holiday with, bump into would see that there is something in our hearts that we rightly value more highly than everything else. Let's pray. God in heaven, every single one of us in this room can confess that we do not value your kingdom as highly as we ought. Some of us, by your grace, have been brought into your kingdom for decades of our lives. And we plead with you to help us see this world in perspective. Please, would we not be so consumed by the good gifts that you give us in this world that we lose sight of the infinitely valuable treasure that is ours in knowing that our sins have been forgiven, that we need not fear you, that we're part of your family and we will be forever. Father, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus and to do so in ways that constantly keep this world in perspective. And Father, we want to pray especially for any who are here who haven't yet come to see the indescribable value of knowing the forgiveness of our sins, of of knowing that we are part of a kingdom that will never end and in which we find no sin or suffering or dying for the old order of things will be banished forever. Father, I pray that if there are any in this room who have only ever seen Christianity as hard and demanding and sacrificial. Father, would your spirit open their eyes to see the wonder of the treasure in Jesus and would their hearts be filled with joy. Father, we pray that for every single one of us, our lives would be different, but that difference would come out of an overflowing, joyful thanks for all that you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that because we want to bring you glory in the way that our lives are are an entire offering of thankfulness to you and are a testimony to a watching world. Father, please would you forgive us that too often we might say with our mouths that this good news of Jesus is the most precious thing in the world and we live our lives hardly shaped by it at all. 
please would your spirit be molding and transforming and changing us so that our lives and our speech are one and they are one testimony to the greatness of Jesus. We love him, but long to love him more. And we pray that as we grow in our faith, there would never be a day when we diminish in our eyes the precious value of his treasure. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.